This is the Horse Radio Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Sport Horse Podcast. I'm Nicole Lakin. And I'm Tim Warden. And we have an episode full of great information for you today. Yeah, we're chatting. Uh, we were chatting a bit last week about how excited we were for our next few episodes coming up because we found some people doing really exciting research that has major implications for how sport horses are managed and trained. And we're excited to dive into these topics and think about how this can really be applied to our own horses. On today's show, we have Alyssa Logan, a PhD candidate studying equine exercise physiology at Michigan State University under Dr. Brian Nielsen. She received her master's in animal science at Michigan State and her BSc in animal science at the University of Wisconsin, River Falls. Her graduate research and publications focus on the impact that exercise and, manage, and management have on equine bone and joint health. In addition to her research, she's active in horse sports, focusing on the Western events most recently, where she rides professionally, coaches, and is a certified judge. And I kind of came across Alyssa. She was, uh, her research was recommended to me from a friend. And uh, it's something that has a lot of impact to, I think, how we should be thinking about managing our horses. Uh, At the end of the day, it all comes down to trying to get uh, the musculoskeletal system healthy and uh, ready to perform while also making sure that a horse can stay fit to compete for long periods of time. That when it comes time to retire, they also have, uh, you know, good lives after the sporting career ends. So I think that this research will have major implications for that. And it's something that applies to uh, every sporting discipline. Hello, Alyssa, and welcome to the Sport Horse Podcast. No problem. Thank you so much for having me, and I look forward to answering your questions. Uh, To start, we were looking at some of the research you've been conducting in young animals, looking at bone and cartilage response to intense exercise, where they would go out and perform exercise a few times a week. In the sport horse world, and even in children, there are often concerns about doing high-intensity workouts when the body is still developing. So can you discuss a little bit about how you studied this and some of the key findings from your work? Absolutely. Um, And honestly, Tim, you really hit the nail on the head there that there certainly is controversy between whatever kind of juvenile animals or young children on whether exercise young is appropriate or not and what type of exercise is appropriate. So really the reason that we wanted to do this bone and joint work with young animals is to kind of help kind of clarify these myths. A lot of um, research that we do in our lab kind of ends up being myth busting. And it's really fun to take that approach and talk with the industry and help to clarify something in terms of research. So some work that I did um, with my advisor, Dr. Brian Nielsen here at Michigan State University and my master's is we actually want to determine how many days per week is a short sprint of exercise needed to lead to bone growth? Um, There are some excellent books and previous research, kind of historic research by Ruben and Lanyon from 1984 and on showing that young animals and young people, kind of whoever has a skeleton, um, we need dynamic exercise to be able to lead to an increase in bone strength. There's two really important processes in bone that happen. Um, And I'm going to really, it's it's important to me that everyone can understand this. So I really don't want to go deep into the science, but there's two words I want you to understand. We have bone modeling, which is basically 
when you're growing, you're making bone and you have the opportunity to make it stronger, make it not strong. And then we have bone remodeling, which is how we maintain bone throughout our life. It's a mechanism of replacement, but that happens throughout your whole life. Whereas bone modeling, where we're making nice young bone, that only happens when you're growing. So in terms of horses, our kind of generally accepted marker for um, skeletal maturity is about three to four years of age. And we want to kind of hit that time frame and find what can we do to benefit the skeleton before them. So we got really intense in a super cool bone study, and we actually used juvenile cats for this study. Um, and here, you know, we're on the um, we're on a Sport Horse podcast. We're talking about horses. You're not in the wrong place. We used calves because they're an excellent skeletal model and they're a terminal model that we can use at the end of the study. These animals were designated for food production. So they went into food production as they were supposed to be. Um, I got to keep their bones and perform some tests on them that we normally could not perform on horses. And we gained some really important information from that. So the information that we got is we sprinted these calves a short 71 meter sprint. Um, and we did that one, three or five days per week. And we only did that for six weeks. And then we had um, a group of calves that grew up with my research calves and they didn't leave their stall. So whenever calves weren't exercising, they were in their stall. And then I had my control group that stayed in their stall. And what we found is the calves that exercised, whether it be one, three or five days per week, they all had a 25% increase to bone strength compared to those animals that were confined. So when we take these results and we kind of put it into real life, what does that look like? Um, here in the U.S., we really don't use the metric system outside of science. I certainly wish that we did. But a regular quarter mile track that goes around a football field, if you break that up into sixths, that's about the distance that a calf would run per day. And when you we did this uh, once per week for only six weeks. So if we ask our animals to go around a sixth of a quarter mile track once a week, that leads to a 25 percent increase to bone strength, which is super cool. But it doesn't take a ton of exercise because, um, frankly, on the side, I do a little bit of training. And right now I have four horses in training and I am very busy with just those four horses. And I know a lot of tracks and trainers, they've got a lot of horses that they are working with. So when thinking about prepping young horses, you know, being able to apply some extra exercise one day per week versus every single day for hours is awesome. And it's a very short distance. And the thing that's really important to note with this type of exercise is the magnitude of it. It's something in the strain environment that is important that if these animals are doing a sprint, a nice little gallop versus a walk or a light jog that tells the bone, hey, we're doing some fast stuff here. I need some help. I need you to be strong versus our confined calves that stayed in the stall. Um, their bodies kind of told their bones, ah, I don't really need you anymore. Calcium's expensive. So why don't you put that calcium somewhere else? We're kind of, we're kind of done with it here. Um, so it's a really long winded explanation, but um, we're going to talk about the study probably quite a bit more in this discussion today. So good to give you a background on why we did it, what we did and what we found.
That's really fascinating. Um, I I know we have a lot to get to, but I, I just want to circle back to something that I um, think that a lot of people probably think about when managing sport horses and young horses. Um, and you talked about your control group that were, um, you know, stall bound. Um, and you talked about the difference between like exercise, you know, sprinting versus walking. But I'm just curious because there are a lot of similarities and applications between um you know, livestock and horses in, in regards to just like general movement. Um, and I'm just curious if there's any similar research or findings as it relates to, for example, young horses that are living, you know, outside and and grazing all day. So they're moving a lot, but they're not exercising, um, per se, is is there anything that you can share with us um, to sort of give give context to that? Absolutely, I love. Now is the perfect time to talk about that, Nicole. Um, so, kind of our need for this study that I just talked about is helping kind of the racing industry or you know the sport horse industry, where um, once animals get into a high level of training, they're kind of confined a little bit, and when they're entering that training young, they're confined a little bit. But truly, there's quite a bit of research out there. Um, there's been some research in young foals that are about five months of age. And then we've um, we've done some research in our group on some horses that are yearlings and two-year-olds and found that pasture is great. Um, truly, I'm going to be selfish in terms of handling horses and mentally managing them overall. I ideally love my horses to be out on pasture as much as physically possible. And if that's 24-7... That's ideal for me personally. Um, but we have some neat research that showed that partial pasture, you know, not every facility has the room to put everything out on pasture every day and manage good feeding and forage for those animals. So maybe we have to rotate some pastures and um, we're in the mud season here in Michigan. So kind of have to reserve some of those muddy pastures and let them dry up. But being out on pasture for 12 hours a day, there's actually some research by um, Bell and colleagues that came out of our lab in the early 2000s showing that if they're out for 12 hours a day or 24 hours a day, they had the same benefit to bone compared to an animal that didn't go out. Um, And hypothetically, what we showed in our study was that a short 71 meter sprint once per week was enough to lead to a pretty significant increase in bone strength. And, you know, Nicole, you're right. A lot of times when they're out on pasture, they're, they're just grazing and kind of hanging out with your buddies. But at some point, you know, a car's going to honk or they're kind of going to you know, get those zoomies that they do. And somebody's <laughs> going to skip around and buck around a little bit. And that's dynamic exercise, just like sprinting. They're really good at taking care of themselves and what they need. So I'm all for let those youngsters out, let them play, let them buck around, let them be horses, let them learn, you know, those social things that they need. It's good for them mentally, but we have the research too, that it's good for their skeletal system. And what we get into trouble with is when we pull them off pasture and put them in the stall to begin training because they've lost their their access to dynamic exercise that they were used to in being out on pasture. So when we take that away from being out on pasture, we have to have that mindset of, okay, I have to allow some speed somewhere. And especially when going into some high speed training, like race training, they need to be allowed to gallop a little bit at the beginning to keep those bones strong. So we have less chance for breakdown as they enter the faster gallops later in their career. So yeah, Nicole, pasture all the way. My, uh, my show horses live outside too. 
I want to come back now to, to your research and a conversation that Tim and I have had um, with a lot of different people, actually, and, and several times um, is about the sort of debate that is raging um, among young human athletes regarding early specialization versus early sampling. Um, and just to give a little context for those who don't know, early specialization is an approach for training young athletes um, that has the athlete focus on just one sport while excluding participation in other sports. On the other hand, early sampling would be when young athletes become involved in multiple sports, both formally and, you know, in unorganized environments. So uh, circling back to sport horses, I think the bias, at least in disciplines that I'm most familiar with, is, is generally towards early specialization. Um, so really focusing on, on whatever the discipline is that a horse has been designated for and sort of excluding participating in other sports or, or disciplines. Um, and I know that you've studied animals doing one movement over a period of weeks. So how do you think a diverse set of exercises might have impacted your results? Great question, Nicole. Um, and I feel like there's kind of a few ways to answer this question. Um, my expertise in terms of answering it is certainly going to be in terms of the skeletal system, but I'll be sure to circle back to kind of the mental aspect of it at the end too. So in my study, the calves were only sprinting, just shoop, run forward, go sprint. Um, and what was important with getting that response in bone, as we kind of really alluded to here, is really important is they're sprinting. They were going at a faster speed. We had another study um, done by Holly Spooner in our lab that she published, and she put some young Arabian horses. I can't remember if they were yearlings or two-year-olds off the top of my head, but they were young. And she put them into endurance training where they're doing mostly trotting for like up to 60 kilometers per day. And they found those horses that were trotting, 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 trotting a long time. Their bone did not receive the benefits from exercise that we saw in my calves here. So, um, you know, those horses were very specialized to, we're just trotting, we're just trotting, we're just trotting. So had those horses, you know, mixed in once a day, we're going to, we're going to gallop a little bit. Maybe they would have seen a different response say an increase in bone. Now in my study, when we're only sprinting, if I had said one week we're sprinting and the next week we're trotting, I don't know if we would have seen these same increase. Um, or if we had the cats do like one lap of sprint, one lap of trot, maybe we still would see the increase because the sprint is in there. So I don't think that doing, um, you know, some sampling is a bad idea as long as you recognize kind of what the purpose of certain exercises are. And as long as you like in a case such as bone here, as long as you include something dynamic, like allowing a sprint to happen. Um, so like with kids, um, my, uh, my brother is a big time swimmer, but he doesn't swim all year long because his shoulders can't hold up to it. And I'm really, as a like bone physiologist, it's kind of like, okay, good. You should, uh, you should be hitting the ground every once in a while because just swimming isn't the greatest thing for bone. Um, so he does like some running and mountain biking throughout other parts of the year to kind of hit up some, some different parts of his body that aren't as tired in the off season. So I think with, um, you know, when we talk about training horses, we are trying to, to fit that horse to their purpose pretty early on in their career. Um, I know you've shared most of your listeners are a sport horse. So kind of doing more dressage, eventing, jumping, 
Um, my background is in the, the reigning and Western performance events. And something kind of neat that's happened in the Western performance world is the onset of ranch riding has gotten really popular. And with it being something that's recently getting popular, we're seeing a lot of the reigning horses go and try the ranch riding. Well, the reigning is, you know, you do circles, you do spins and you do stops. And in the ranch riding, you do a little bit of trotting, you trot over poles, you do a little bit of side passing, you wear cattle. Um, I've seen in terms of the mentality of their, these horses, they're just, they're so fresh. They're having so much fun in the ranch riding. They continue to have fun in the reining. Um, so allowing some kind of sampling is really cool within those sports. And they kind of help each other, you know, with um, teaching those horses to be confident and handle a cow they can uh, maybe hold the ground a little bit better when they stop or if they're getting used to going over trap poles, maybe using some different muscles in their back that they wouldn't in the reining. But it's certainly that sampling isn't taking away from their normal training and something else. So, you know, in terms of the mental aspect, I have a lot of trainers I've talked to. Um, it's a fun thing to keep your horse fresh. But we just have to recognize that it has to kind of serve a purpose that benefits the horse some for some horses what really benefits them is i want to get out of the arena and go on a trail ride or for some of those trail horses what benefits them is i need a little bit of arena training to learn how to be respectful on the bit um but of course as i said in terms of the skeletal system we just want to make sure that with trying some sampling we're not taking away the chance for um that that sprint exercise just like letting kids go run around and play soccer try basketball try gymnastics, try all the fun things that get them uh, running on the ground. That's perfect. And, and really, really interesting, Alyssa. And it, it reminds me a little bit of uh, some of the discussions from the human side. And I think a lot of the forward thinking tr coaches uh, and trainers, just like you're saying, they, they think about it almost as, as dosages. So what, what type of dosage does an athlete need to maintain uh, their speed ability or their uh, bone strength or their muscular strength? And then especially as exercise becomes more and more intense. It's about like, okay, kind of what's the, what's the minimum we need to sustain athletes kind of when they're at uh, their mature level already. So it's really, really interesting to hear you uh, talk about that. And I, I also liked how you brought in the idea of keeping the horses fresh and happy. That's kind of been an, an overarching theme of uh, the podcast so far is, is everyone just talking about how important it is to have a, an athlete, a horse that's mentally wanting to do the job, right? Because if they don't want to, uh, engage in whatever you're asking them to do, then it's just going to be a failure. So both really good points. Um, just moving on. Uh, so your more recent research, which I think is making up your PhD, is looking at lunging in horses and the impact that different gates and different cir circle diameters will have on the forces beneath the, the front legs. So uh, as you know, and our listeners know at home, uh, lunging is a central pillar of many sport training, sport horse training programs. So what are some of the findings from your research and how should this be interpreted by trainers and owners? What should we be doing and thinking about when we are prescribing lunging for our horses? Absolutely. Yeah. I'm excited to talk about this one. Um, as I alluded to, you know, my master's kind of affects the racing industry, um, but my PhD work that I am uh, just about done with, um, it, it affects more of the, you know, the performance in the sport horse world, kind of the everyday people and, um, and not just lunging, but circular exercise overall, you know, uh, working a youngster in a round pen. And as I said, I have a reining background and I have run more circles than I could count. And, you know, we use circular exercise and when we're riding a dressage horse too. So we use it in a lot of different ways. 
Um, and here's what I'll say about, we're just going to call it circular exercise to kind of encompass all of it, the lunging and the riding. It's not going to go away. Um, and it, it can't really, it's a part of how we exercise in the world of horses. Um, we can't just exercise everything in a long, straight line. It just physically doesn't work. And the way that we evaluate horses, we want them in arena so that we can see the whole performance. You know, if we were even, you know, the big old steeplechases and the racetracks, at some point you, you have to turn the big old tracks. They might have a more gradual turn and have utilized some banking to help with the speed, but turning does kind of exist in every sector of riding. And um, it's interesting. My, uh, my husband is a, um, an engineer and a big race car guy. And we were watching a, you know, an ass car race. And I was kind of thinking the same thing, like, huh, cars are a lot like horses too. Like they have to turn too. And I, like, I'm always asking about like, well, how does that wear on the like nut and everything? Um, but back to how this can be interpreted by, um, trainers and owners. So the things that we wanted to look at were kind of some environmental parts of circular exercise. We wanted to look at two things. How does the gait that the horse is traveling impact um, what kind of what their body's doing and how does the size of the circle also impact the horse? And then we kind of wanted to put those things together and say, okay, how does the gait interact with the size? So our big question and kind of our big plan was if you make the circle small and you ask the horse to go fast, that's probably going to be the worst condition compared to making the circle large even at that same speed or even going slower. Um, and so we did another calf study because again, we're able to look at things in bone and in the joints. And that study is very close to being published. So I'm not going to give you 100% all of the results yet, but I'll tell you the overarching theme. Um, the first thing is horses are really great athletes compared to calves. Um, the calves were great to sprint, very short sprint when I did my master's study. Doing a circular exercise study with calves, and we put them in a horse walker and saying, hey, calves, you know, you want to go uh, gonna go lope around or jog around on this walker for me for 15 minutes? They're kind of like, nah, I don't really want to do that. <laughs> um, and I actually had a few calves that they needed a buddy, and they had to have people in there with them. Um, so I did some circular exercise myself. But... So what we found for the calves is we said, okay, we're going to keep, we're going to, we're going to keep speed really slow because that's what the calves can do. And they're going to give us some information. So the calves just walked on a walker, which is something that we use a lot in the industry and rehab kind of an exercising, maybe to get some horses out of their stall on a day off. So totally applicable to the horse industry. So I put them on a walker and we had a really cool walker built for us that has two different diameter circles. So we had a small circle that was 12 meter diameter, large circle that was 18 meter diameter. So keeping speed constant, what happens if we change the diameter of the circle? And we found that because our calves were going pretty slow, we really didn't see any changes to bone. But what we saw were some impacts of the circular exercise to um, overall biomarkers and some joint fluid that we looked at. And again, I haven't published it yet, so I'm not going to give you 100% everything. But even at a walk, we're seeing the body change some things a little bit, which is really, really interesting to know. Um, didn't really see any differences between the two sizes, just that circular exercise led to some different responses than either walking straight or no walking at all. 
But I have another study that we just published in the journal Animals um, at the end of last year. And this study we used, um, it's cool, actually, I listened to your um, conversation that you had with Pat Riley and had some discussions in setting up this project because we used the tech scan system. So we put the tech scan hoof system on horses' front legs and we said, all right, I want you to walk, jog, and lope in a circle and I want you to walk, jog, or in a small circle and I want you to walk, jog, and lope in a large circle. And we're going to compare that to what happens when you walk and jog in hand. Um, we didn't lope in hand. We can't run that fast safely. We, uh, we'd love to use like a long run to do that in the future, but that's what we did. And from that, we found that the way at the area that the horses loaded, their legs changed when they were on a circle. So when they were cantering around in the circle, we found that they loaded more area of the outside leg than the inside leg. So they're pushing off more with the outside leg the the outside front leg and we know this we found some other research that shows that there's more strain to the outside leg there's more force in humans and in horses um but it was really cool to finally have some results that show the actual area of the foot um of the inside leg is going to be loaded a little bit less which means we have you now have a foot that's going around a circle and you're loading on less of an area which means you could have a pretty big potential for injury going up the leg and in doing all of this, we're really working to try and eventually make a connection between circular exercise and osteoarthritis incidents. Um, there's certainly a lot of anecdotal evidence and some hypotheses that circular exercise and the way that we utilize it can lead to some injuries and potential osteoarthritis later in the horse's life. So we're, we're kind of just at the tip of the iceberg. And um, so in that study, those horses were just exercising freely in a round pen. They weren't being lunged, um, but we have some conditions that we'd really like to go forward and look at and say, you know, if we put the horse just in kind of your basic lunging attire with a halter and a lunge line, how do they exercise compared to if they're freely worked in a round pen versus if they're ridden in a circle or also if they're kind of put on the lunge line and fit it up with a sur single and asked to travel upright, does that change things too? Because um, we can certainly alter how our horses exercise. Um, so knowing personally what I know about circular exercise from all of my data, the way that I exercise my horses, if I have to lunge a horse um, or if I have to utilize circular exercise under saddle, I want to encourage my horses to use their muscles and use their body and travel in an upright manner compared to traveling in a really tight circle and pulling their head in and they're leaning way in at like 45 degrees because we know that lean in angle um, is going to really impact that unevenness between the front and the outside legs. So your inside leg is going to be loading less area. Your outside leg is going to have to do a lot of pushing. Your inside leg does more of the standing versus being in a larger circle where they can kind of stand up. Um, and in, in the um, horse text scan study, we found that gait was kind of more of an impact, important factor in terms of how the horse was affected in terms of loading than the circle size. So it kind of seemed like regardless of the circle size, that horse is still going to load its front legs in an uneven area. Um, so just being on a bigger circle may not necessarily fix everything. Um, and of course we have 
hundreds of circle sizes that we can try, but just between our like 12 and 18 meter size, but just knowing that, you know, as soon as you start turning, you are putting some different pressures on that horse when you're cantering. Um, we didn't see the area be different between the walk and the trot. Um, so that's, that's kind of some good news that if you really are, you know, if all that you have to ride in is a round pen and you really, you know, need to get that horse trained that you might want to utilize some of the slower speeds for your longer term workouts. Um, but also there's the mental aspect to horses. I, uh, I've had the privilege to work with a few young horses and I recognize that to properly round pen a horse or to lunge a horse, you need some speed for a second to put that horse in the correct working mindset. And there's kind of the, the safety aspect of things. But when we step back and kind of answer the overall question, the reality is everything in moderation. If we, you know, if we do need to utilize circular exercise, evaluate what's the age of that horse, you know, are they a young baby and it's their first time in their round pen, um, you know, recognize they're going to need a few seconds to acclimate to going in a circle versus, you know, your old broke horse that you're given a lesson to and somebody's going to be really safe walking around on it. You probably maybe don't need to go super fast in that round pen. Um, so yeah, circular exercise is probably going to be used for the eternity of time because the world doesn't go on forever. We have to turn at some point, but it's how we turn, at what gate we turn, and the severity of the turn that we're really trying to figure out exactly how much um, do we need. And it seems like right now, speed certainly does make an impact. That's all really, really fascinating. Um, I think it's important to mention too, Obviously, we're kind of talking about circling the horses here and lunging the horses as exercise, where as I think uh, in some disciplines, it could also be used as a, a means of sort of uh, getting the horse tired uh, so that uh, it'll, it'll be more relaxed for the performance. And I imagine, um, you know, things obviously change dramatically when fatigue comes into play. Yeah. But I want to, I want to jump to um, something else that we wanted to touch on. You're, you have this really unique perspective because of the extensive research that you've done. And um, I can't wait to see this, the new study that you just mentioned, it's, it's uh, you know, soon to be published, but you also train horses yourself. So you, you really do bridge the gaps between the, the science and horsemanship components um, that we're really focused on here on the podcast. So um, I'm wondering, wondering if, you know, based on your studies and your perspective, um, you can talk a little bit about the, the sort of limitations of scientific research in animals. Um, it, it tends to be hard to study animals over longer periods of time for, you know, many reasons, but one is just, it's expensive to track horses for many years. Um, so can you talk about you know, sort of your perspective on the scientific research and what you, what perspective you can kind of use to apply to a horse's lifespan, you know, beyond the short periods that you're able to study them and, and what um, sort of hypotheses or um, educated <laughs> um, ideas you have about um, the way horses are trained sort of over their, over their lifespan. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it is definitely a bummer that it's hard to follow horses for their whole lifespan because they can, I mean, it's a great thing at horses that in terms of a lot compared to a lot of other animals, they live for a long time. Um, but you know, they can change owners a lot and it's hard to follow them. And sometimes we lose track. I know, um, I've seen a lot of kind of 
epidemiological racing studies that have tried to follow horse performance, you know, after certain treatments. And um, it's just hard to keep track of them, even if they're all living at the same track. So something interesting that I've seen, it's, it's a little easier to follow mice and rats throughout their life. And while they're not a perfect model for a horse, when we, when we talk about the skeleton, we can certainly just kind of like, oh, that's interesting and similar. So um, I saw a study that they put um, rats kind of through cyclical compressions. It basically would kind of be like artificially sprinting them. And they did this young in their life. And then they were kind of put into a cohort, um, just allowed to range free throughout the cage and have a normal life. And um, I think it was, it was into, it was out of adolescence and in through maturity and kind of into maturity, they came back and looked at those rats and the ones that went through cyclical compressions later in their life, they actually had um, stronger ulna than the calves that or than the, um, than the mice that didn't. And what's important to note about that study is that those mice, when they were done with their training and put back into a normal life, they were allowed to move freely as they want. So not that mice are going to buck like a horse, but they're performing normal exercise and not restrained. And I think that that certainly is really similar with horses. We, you know, we could put them into a little training program like we did with my calves and say, cool, we, we got bones to be stronger and they're ready to go into race training or they're ready to be started as a young colt. And the second you can find them, you've really lost that bone that you've acquired. Um, I know it's kind of cliche to say this, but if you don't use it, you lose it. Now, defining use it is going to be different for what that horse was used to previously. Um, you know, if that horse was used to their once weekly sprint or twice weekly sprint and that sprint's taken away from them, that that certainly isn't going to benefit their bone throughout their whole life. If they were used to that once weekly sprint and then they're put back out on pasture, then it certainly is reasonable that they could maintain that bone that they acquired because they're able to freely access exercise throughout their life. Um, so it is a potential. And I've seen some interesting um, studies with young horses that, um, you know, some, some youngsters that were put out on pasture compared to some youngsters that were maintained in a stall. They threw the stalled horses out onto pasture and the pasture um, little yearlings were able to gain bone strength and be right up there with their, their other young horses that were out on pasture. I think in terms of thinking about a horse's young horse's lifespan, um, we need to be sure that during their youth, they're not confined the whole time. Even if you are at a place that you may not be able to have pasture exercise every day, you know, if you're someone that can safely do high speed exercise in a safe kind of open area, awesome. Or, you know, even uh, turning your horse out in the arena for 20 minutes while you're picking their stall, they'll take care of their dynamic exercise on their own. And if you evaluate that your horse can do that safely, um, they'll have a great time. They'll go roll. Maybe if, uh, you know, there's some paddocks available that they can have some supervised playtime. I, I recognize that some of these horses are very expensive and you certainly don't want them to get hurt. But in the longevity of their life, you might actually be kind of setting them up for the opposite of success if you can find them for the whole time. I love seeing show barns that their horses are out. Their horses have the winters off even and get all fuzzy. It's 
awesome. Um, and those, man, those horses are happy and they, they go for a long time. And even show burns that their horses don't go out every day. I've seen some very, very well-respected trainers in the Western world that, um, you know, the, one of the safe ways that those trainers have taken advantage of that is allowing their horses free time in the arena or free time in some um, very closely monitored paddocks where they can just run around and be a horse for a while. And allowing our horses to do that, I think, is a, a great thing for their skeletal strength and a great thing for their kind of their mental lifespan as well. So really, my answer is if we let them be a horse, I, I think things are great. And um, it's when we intervene and can find them and don't let them be a horse that we certainly have to step in and say, OK, I've, I've taken your dynamic exercise away. I need to give it back and provide it in a different way. All really, really interesting and fascinating, Alyssa. And just hearing you talk, it's it's for sure a hot topic. I think it's probably yeah. always a bit of a hot topic. Right. And uh, Nicole and I are kind of we were in the jumping world mostly. And um, it's kind of cool to see that there are some big name riders uh, who are on so, just so on social media starting to share more about uh, their horses out and they turned out in groups and stuff, which in the jumper world, we don't really actually see that much of, especially at high level. So it's, it's kind of exciting to see the, the dial move a little bit in the, I think the correct direction. And then as well, like I was over in uh, Europe a couple of times last year, uh, helping a friend look for horses and a lot of conversations with young horse producers over there. And it's, it's really interesting to see that because like you like usually when you talk to people who are looking for like really good horses, they they kind of know that they're they're almost just looking for horses that were raised the right way, as kind of you're saying, like horses that got to grow got to uh, grow up and live outside, um, and like they kind of build in that robustness that the musculoskeletal system is developing more naturally. Like those are the ones that tend to have success over a long period of time and tend to have success to the higher levels. So it's all really, really interesting. So the, the last question we, we always ask our guests, Alyssa, and it's a bit of a, a theoretical question, but if you could talk directly to a horse, what would you want to tell them? Or what are some things that you wish that they understood about sport horse training or just uh, living in general? And, you know, you're very unique because you have the research uh, component. You have, you're a very good writer as well. You're also a trainer. So very curious to hear your thoughts on what are some of the things that you wish horses knew when we're trying to train them? <laughs> yeah, I love this question. Um, man, I wish I could tell them how awesome they are. I mean, they're such a fantastic athlete, you know, with their stride coupling that they can do and all the gates that they can perform that are energetically the best way to exercise. And they just do that naturally. Um, so I think I'd start with kind of saying, you know, like how awesome you are. Like, how does it feel <laughs> to be able to do this? Um, I, man, I, I certainly would love to understand pain, to be able to ask them, you know, to ask a horse that's hurting, what hurts? When did it start hurting? What, what makes it hurt more? Um, and certainly, you know, that's, that's something that I know a lot of veterinarians have shared that they wish that, you know, clinically we could just ask a horse, what, what hurts, what did you do? And, and we can get it fixed for you. But I, I would just love to, in terms of a research standpoint, you know, with humans, when they, when you finish a research test, you can kind of ask them about your rate of perceived exertion. I, I can't ask any kinds of questions like that of a horse. And sometimes that's a really good thing because it takes away some of the subjective nature because your horse can't tell you like, eh, that was hard and take away some of the like anonymity to some exercise. But 
I just, I would love to get feedback from them. And um, I, I certainly hope I try really hard to make sure my horses enjoy what they do. They seem really happy. And even just the ones out on pasture that are with me, I just, I'd love to ask them, are you happy? Can I do anything for you? Because that's at the end of the day, that's the most important thing. Perfect. Well, the, this has been an absolutely fascinating topic, Alyssa. Uh, when we when I came across your research, I was super excited. I think I probably emailed you within 20 minutes of finishing reading uh, some of the stuff, and I was still reading through as I was uh, typing that email. So just really, really interesting. I think it, it applies to, uh, of course, sport horses, but I think anyone who's involved in developing horses for any any discipline, for any vocation, it, this is all really important stuff that I think is incredibly valuable. So thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for inviting me. I love, love talking to the general population because truly I'm still a part of that myself. Um, Science isn't just for the scientists. The people in the industry practicing it are really the ones who can make the biggest difference. The sponsor of today's episode is Barn Manager. Barn Manager provides easy-to-use management software that enables barns to improve their record-keeping, scheduling, communication, and business management. With offerings starting at $10 a month, Barn Manager offers solutions for any size stable. Barn Manager is designed for barn managers by barn managers. They communicate with their users on a regular basis to see how their platform can grow and improve. Thanks to customer feedback, Barn Manager is preparing to launch invoicing, payment processing, and revenue tracking tools as part of a new subscription offering called Barn Manager Pro. Find more information on their website and sign up for a personal live demo to learn how Barn Manager can meet your barn's needs. Barn Manager also has a special offer for our listeners. Sign up for a free trial of Barn Manager at www.barnmanager.com and enter code PODCAST10 for 10% off the first three months of your subscription. Go and check it out and we'll have more details in a link to our podcast. Well, that was a really, really interesting conversation um, with Alyssa. I, I learned so much, but I think what's always fascinating to me is no matter how complex the science is, it really comes back to sort of simple takeaways. And and from Alyssa, I, I really found those to be, you know, number one, that everything in moderation is generally the best approach. Um, and also that it's really important to sort of let horses be horses and, and that they do a really good job of taking care of themselves when we uh, are able to, to let them be for the most part. Um, and while, like I said, the science is a little complicated. Um, I think it was really interesting to hear her talk from both perspectives, both, you know, a trainer and, and a scientist and researcher uh, about, the the biomechanical and physiological impacts of you know too much of one thing or not enough of one thing um, and, and how really when you when you find that moderation that middle ground things sort of work themselves out for the most part. Yeah, I, I completely agree with your thoughts, Nicole, and I, I think uh, Alyssa's for sure just incredibly uh, insightful with some of her comments and. I really enjoyed hearing her speak about, uh, as you said, there are some really good take-home points, but as well, it's it's cool to hear her talk about the different places she's finding this information, right? Like for sure, you can, you can study horses and look for information from them, but then also just remembering that uh, there are a lot more similarities and differences 
with horses compared to uh, calves, which she also studied. But there's also, uh, you can look at rats and mice and how they respond to different conditions, also humans and how we respond. And in that way, I think there's a lot of information we can start to take from different areas and apply back to our horses that likely fits into that mold. Yeah, as you say, moderation uh, is key. And thinking about what does your horse truly need? I think often we kind of get stuck in this idea that a horse need, every horse needs to fit into a certain stables program uh, just because, you know, the horse needs to exercise six days a week because every horse six, exercises six days a week. But if you think about it differently and almost think about, okay, what's the checklist we need? So maybe a horse needs that high intensity exercise, maybe once or twice a week to keep the bone healthy and to get some good health in, in the joints as well. And maybe the muscle needs a certain type of workout once or twice a week. And maybe you need endurance work in there once or twice a week, all of those different things, just thinking about what sort of what, what is the bare minimum we need? So the rest of the time can be focused on letting the horse be a horse to go outside, to, to stretch itself, to get in the good, in a good mental space so that it is ready to uh, compete and to continue to be a, a happy horse and have uh, a very successful career, a long career. And at the end of that career, you, you feel good about the life that that horse lives. So I think it's, it's all really fascinating. And it's, I know it's a theme that's going to keep popping up over and over on these episodes. And uh, I'm, I'm really excited to keep exploring that. Me too. So uh, that's a wrap for today's episode. Uh, you can find the links for today's guest and um, the show notes. We'll have lots of links because Alyssa's got lots of great information. Um, you can find all of that at www.sporthorsepodcast.com. I'm going to ask you all to go right now to your Instagram accounts or your and or your Facebook and follow us at Sport Horse Series share uh, our episode content and whatever you can with your friends. Uh, it's just a, a better way for us to be able to communicate directly with you, to hear from you. We want to hear your feedback. We want to know what you guys want to hear about. So definitely go right now before you do anything else and hit that follow button. You can also head to our website for more great educational content. In addition to the Sport Horse series, excuse me, the Sport Horse podcast, we also have the Sport Horse series video library with more in-depth content. It sort of gets more into the, the science um, in a little more detail than we can on these podcast episodes. You can also have all 20 plus shows of the Horse Radio Network with you wherever you go with our free app for iPhone and Android. Go to your app store right now after you have gone to Instagram and liked us and followed us um, and search for Horse Radio Network. With that said, here's to keeping your sport horses happy and healthy. <laughs> <laughs>